I think there's something that happens when you come that close to death. You can go one of two ways. You either curl up in a ball and you're afraid of everything and you let it cripple you, or you realize that there's just nothing left to be afraid of. I discovered that death is not scary. In the most violent of horrific and painful ways, death was not what I was afraid of. Because once I accepted it when I was underwater, in agony, being torn apart, I was drowning at the same time and I accepted that I wasn't going home and calm washed over me. The thing that I was concerned about most was, am I ready? And I thought about my life and I realized that I'd lived 10 lives in these 31 years. I'd done more in my life than I ever thought possible. So yeah, if I'm going to die now, I'm good to go. I don't need to do anymore. I've made up for all the wrongs that I've done as far as I'm concerned and I can die now. And then I didn't die. That's former naval clearance diver and shark attack survivor, Paul DeGelder. And this is episode 263 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 263 of the show with Paul DeGelder. More about Paul in just a moment. What is this show? This podcast is a conversation. It's a conversation you get to be a part of, and it's a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a bit better than yesterday. Sometimes this will be a chat with somebody that you know. Sometimes it'll be with someone you don't know. But no matter what, I guarantee you are going to hear something in the next hour and a bit that you need to hear. You'll hear something that'll help you make today a bit better than yesterday. Something that you go, oh, all right, I've thought about that way. Well, that's probably, I should do a bit of that. Yeah, that's that's what I'm here to do. Who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. Hi. I'm, um, what am I, what do I do for money? I, I do stuff on telly at the moment. I'm also a husband, a stepdad. I live in Sydney, Australia. I eat only plants. I've done for a long, long time. I, I like to ride my bicycle. I swing my kettlebells. I like to do this podcast. I've been making this show every Monday since 2013. There's 262 other episodes to go check out if you want to go have a listen. Um, a massive thank you to all and sundry who've been supporting the live shows uh, based upon the book, which is also doing really, really well. I just got told they pulled the trigger on another couple thousand copies. <laughs> in the lead up to Christmas. So if you know anyone that hasn't got one yet and you want to get them one or, you know, Christmas gift for 2018, um, yeah, we've got some more books to sell. <laughs> um, that'd be good. Uh, but everyone that's been supporting the live shows, which is a, a live show based on the book, uh, there's two dates left, Melbourne next week, Brisbane in February. Tickets for all the gigs at osherginsberg.com. I uh, cannot wait to bring the family down to Melbourne. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to have a couple of days down there and, and do the gigs. Uh, can't wait. It's going to be brilliant. Toe is going to be there, his hometown. So, um, yeah, very, very much looking forward to it. And a massive thank you to all of the support around the audio book. 
which you can also get at osherginsberg.com. The audiobook was named this week as one of Audible's Best of 2018, which is a huge honor and makes me so grateful to everybody that supported the audiobook, but also to my wife, Audrey, who executive produced the audiobook, um, basically providing me excellent performance. I wouldn't have read it the way I read it had Audrey not been sitting on the couch going, no, do it again. No, you sound like a robot. Say that with emotion. That's an emotional part. Put some emotion into it. What did it feel like at the time? Talk about it from there. Hey, do it. No, yes. Do it again, just like that. So yeah, she did that for a couple of days and helped me get it right. And also did some excellent live fact-checking, which is pretty funny when you hear it because you hear a bunch of stuff that isn't in the actual pages book, the one made out of paper. Um, so yeah, thanks everybody for that. That audio book is available as well at osherginsberg.com. Hang on, Baraka. Better. Okay, so better check in to check in this week. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about overwhelm this week, you know? That overwhelming feeling, the feeling that you just can't fix whatever it is that needs fixing right now. We've all been there. You know the feeling. Moving house, starting over after a breakup, dealing with one of your kids starting a new school, the endless lists of tasks that would fill a toilet roll if you wrote one task on every sheet and then you'd still need more rolls. It's paralyzing. Like you can't even begin because it's just so massive. But then another day goes by and you've not done a thing and it's gotten worse now because the deadline's not moved, but you've squandered the one thing you wish you had more of, which was time to deal with it. And today, geez, today it was just everything. My back hurts because I didn't stretch enough. I'm on my third email telling me I've got to order the school books now for one by February. I need to book the accommodation for a holiday or we're sleeping on someone's couch. What, what are we going to do for Christmas Day? I need a haircut. The world is warming up. There's bushfires out of season. Triple storms a thousand kilometers from where they should be. Politicians in charge don't seem to know, don't seem to care. It's just all too fucking much. I couldn't breathe, man. So this morning, as I, as I messed up my regular routine, missed a bunch of hours of sleep and was late for everything, overwhelmed and, to be honest, on the verge of tears. Not, not sad over anything in particular, but just that was my body's reaction to the stress and the weight of bloody everything. That, because somehow my ego has decided that the weight of the world rests on my shoulders. It doesn't, but every now and again, my ego decides it does. And somewhere between just stepping out of the shower and putting my clothes on, the answer popped into my head. Does that. That's usually when the answers show up, when you're in the middle of doing something else. And it was clear as day. Just do it like your sobriety, mate. Just do it a day at a time. I was like, oh, did I think of that? That's a really good idea. Can't be my idea. <laughs> the best advice about staying sober given to me, it was in my early weeks of sobriety. Uh, someone just said, look, you don't need to say no to a drink every day for the rest of your life. You just need to say no to the drinks today. As long as you get through today, as long as you do the work and get through the day and get to bed by 10 30 each night without drinking, you've done this perfectly. All you got to do is get up and do that tomorrow. So that's what I'm trying to do today. Not trying to fix everything all at once. Not wishing things weren't the way that they are. Just doing what I can, where I am with what I have and taking tiny actions in the direction of what I value and hold important in my heart. How can I move forward with kindness, with compassion, with purpose, and with curiosity? Do a tiny little step in those directions. Because the only way out of the flames is through, I know that much. If I don't move, it just gets worse. Action is the only thing that makes, for me, anything painful any better. So... The tiniest little things that I could do. I stretched. I worked out. I checked which subjects I need to order for the school bloody textbook list. Somehow they need it 12 weeks in advance. 
I investigated somewhere to stay. I sent my faxes to the politicians that I do this week. Speaking of which, Tony Burke, the, the shadow environment minister, faxed me back. That's pretty rad. And you know what? Things feel a little better. Better than if I'd done nothing. Like Jan Fran taught us a few weeks back. Remember what the Jan Fran episode? She said something brilliant. You don't have to do everything. You can't do nothing, but you can do something. She's bloody good. So no matter what's weighing you down, no matter what's overwhelming you, do something. Something tiny. Just something in the direction of your values and your purpose. That seems to be the key to not feeling like Indiana Jones running from that big boulder, right? Well, at least that's what I've learned over the years. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. Paul DeGelder is a former naval clearance diver from Australia, whom after a horrific shark attack, which saw him lose his right forearm and right leg, has since become a high-profile shark conservationist, author, actor, motivational speaker, and advocate for a plant-based diet. A former Brisbane boy, he found incredible success in the military, first with the Australian Army and then with the Navy, until in February 2009, while testing some new technology in Sydney Harbour, right by the naval base, right next to the Opera House, he was attacked by a bull shark, an attack that nearly killed him. Paul has described feeling a whack on the leg, looking down and seeing a bull shark, two rows of 36 razor-sharp teeth locked onto his upper right thigh. He tried to push the shark away when he realised that his right hand was also in the shark's mouth and it was literally eating him alive, all the while dragging him deeper underwater. Suddenly the shark was gone and Paul's wetsuit was buoyant enough to bring him back to the surface where he managed to swim back to the safety boat. Multiple complicated surgeries, months of painful rehab and sheer determination. Later, Paul returned to the Navy as a diving instructor, this time with a prosthetic right arm and right leg. Paul's story is one that has rightly inspired millions around the world who now know him as one of the faces of the international cultural phenomenon Shark Week, where he's routinely back underwater, back face-to-face with nature's apex predators. I can't get enough of this guy. He is a testament to acceptance of a situation beyond our control, then adapting and living your fullest life with your new parameters. Paul is such an inspiring man, a beacon of showing how strength and compassion coexist within one person. He's also a man whose mental fortitude is one that I honestly aspire to. His outlook on life is something that I wish I had. If you have Instagram, I'd highly suggest following him there. He's Paul DeGelder, P-A-U-L-D-E-G-E-L-D-E-R. In fact, just the other day, he posted something that I wanted to read to you. Uh, This is a quote from Paul. Probably the biggest reason I never slid into depression is because I found value and purpose. I lost a lot, but instead of bitching about it, 
I've found ways to fill those holes with a whole new set of skills and a whole new life. No PTSD, no nightmares, never a flashback. The struggle doesn't weaken us. It forges us into a stronger, more durable tool to improve the lives of those around us. That is value and purpose. Paul's an incredible guy. I'm stoked for you to meet him. So if you will, come to my kitchen where you can sit and enjoy a cup of tea with this absolutely remarkable man, the one and only Paul de Gelder. I think the first year I went was uh, 2005 and I went there for like whenever Idol wasn't on, Mm -hmm. I went. And then very quickly, whenever I didn't have to be here, I was there. Yeah, that's Uh, what I did for two years too. I told everyone here, I'm going to pursue career opportunities. What I was actually doing was fleeing because it was so weird being in public. Really? Yeah, I was. I was it's awkward. Ad yet hadn't been diagnosed with social phobia yet. Okay. And so I was just so freaked out by being on the street. Oh wow! And um, being on the, I mean, this, you know, gratefully, this massive TV show. Um, but you're, yeah, you're a public figure now. Yeah. You, and at the time, like I said, I was undiagnosed and I was dealing with everything just using the. I didn't even know that was a thing. Social phobia. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Fear of people. So, so many phobias. Yeah. I, I think I have that selectively. True, true. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Hi, mate. Thank you so much for coming. I'm no so dramas. bloody grateful you made the, the journey. It's not far. I'm just over at my sister's place at Kensington. So, all it's right. Like well, it's $7 Uber pool these days. <laughs> Uber pool. Yeah. I haven't taken one of them yet. What's yeah. it like? Yeah, it's so bad. Yeah. It's, it's, it's way cheaper. Like, yeah. While I'm here, I'm, I'm trying to be cost effective because uh, living in LA is expensive, as you know. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I don't need to, but I, I don't like to just be silly with my money there's just because you're you're making good coin doesn't mean you need to be a douche about it and yeah. drive around in rented maseratis and stuff <laughs> I, i'm happy a- to do an uber pool and have a chat with someone in a car oh that's awesome oh that's that's so, so i know awesome. i am um, so I, I have a friend in san diego she's a, a navy helicopter pilot she's a badass on the weekend she drives for lift <laughs> just because she likes doing it you know she goes from during the week flying badass navy helicopters to a car Wow. Yeah, it's strange. At that massive base there just north yeah, of... Yeah, Coronado. Yeah. Yep. I've been surfing just south of there mm-hmm. and... Of Pendleton, you're talking about? Uh, the big Marine Corps base? Yeah. 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 It's, that thing's got a four-lane highway down the middle of it. Yeah. They have more personnel on that base and more aircraft than we have in our whole defence force. It wouldn't surprise <laughs> it's me It's insane how big that military is. I've been, um, I've been surfing at Del Mar with my friend Jeremy and, uh, you know, it was just beautiful reef break. It was glorious and... Um, just big long boards. It was super fun. And overhead, these uh, sea kings, I think. I didn't like the the possibly slowest possible speed physics allowing <laughs> that these choppers. Yeah, they were maybe 18 meters above us. Oh, wow. I could see their faces, you know, uh-huh. just looking straight at us. You could feel the downdraft and feel the thump in your chest. Yeah, it's pretty it's cool. Pretty wild. And then they go, and then you're just back there with the manta rays and the. <laughs> <laughs> a kid got bitten by a great white there recently. Whoa. Yeah. Just uh, like near Oceanside somewhere, the Encinitas. Um, I did want to ask you. Uh, so two, we're both from Brisbane. No, no, no. I, I was born in Melbourne. You were born in Melbourne. Yeah. You spent a fair bit of time in Brisbane. Moved to Canberra. Dad got posted with the cops. Moved to Canberra when I was ten, and then finally escaped to Canberra at twenty-one, and, and moved to Brisbane. Yeah, right. So Didn't see you in the strip club I was working at. I beg your pardon. You're not a big strip club fan. I, I worked at a big strip club, and you Which were never one? there. Santa Fe Gold. Santa Fe Gold. It was Gold. on Ann Street next to the R&B club. Uh, I think it was called Euphoria or something Santa like that. Santa Fe Gold on Ann Street. 
I don't think I ever went to that one. Like players in the in the mall. No, I didn't go. Was to that, that, was that show? That was Showgirls. Which year was that? This is um, God, nineteen ninety. I did the Snoop concert in 98, so it was like 97 to 2000 because nah. I joined the army in 2000. I left in 98. Okay, that would be left, I left in 98 and by that point uh, I was I had a – me and strip clubs, initially we weren't friends. Yeah. Then we were friends <laughs> and then we weren't friends again. I don't like them at all just because I worked in them. I know the mentality of the girls and I, don't, I don't have no interest in talking to some girl that just wants your money. Yeah. Well, it's a. I mean, I read the Janet Jamison book. It's a. It's an extraordinary. Uh, it's an extraordinary hustle. Yeah. And my hats off. Uh-huh. You know, my hats are off because yeah. it's. Well, we had girls. You know. You know. You, people joke about. Oh, she. You know, she's putting herself through school, but a lot of them actually are. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're raising kids and they're making more money than these people struggling out on the street. And it's not the classiest Four job hours. in the world, but they're living a classy life outside that. Four hours of work, five hours of work a night, yeah. and uh-huh. you're, you're doing your thing. Um, yeah, because you were uh, at that time. I wonder if we ever had any crossover gigs in the in the hip hop scene because I played double bass with the Resin Dogs for a while. That's right, my buddy, um, one of my guys I grew up with, Matt Nugent. Um, he was good friends with the Resin Dogs, and he's good friends with the Pop Bellies and stuff now. So he was DJing around the place. So maybe yeah. maybe you had with him, but I didn't have that many jobs. You know, we were only rapping at the at. The gig we had the upstairs. Yeah, I remember that. Um, remember that joint on Saturday Saturday nights, I think. Um, but only at maybe parties that we were running. Yeah, man, I remember going to that that place. We thought we were such rock stars. Oh yeah, it was an interesting time. Interesting time in Brisbane. But then mm-hmm. you know, I got a radio job and they it, it took me away. Did you ever? Um, you joined the military in Brisbane? Uh, yeah, yeah. Joined joined from um, the the recruiting centre in, in Brisbane City. Um, joined infantry and then just I've been in Sydney ever since. Right, yeah, so posted yeah. straight to Third Battalion down at Holsworthy, and just um, I haven't left until now. What was the like? You doing door at a, at a at a strip joint? I was barman. You were barman at yeah, a strip joint. I controlled the flow of liquor, so I was everyone's friend. You sure were. <laughs> what was the day where you went? Yeah, nah, I'm gonna get some of that military action. I um I left the strip club to focus on music. Um, because that's always a great idea. Um, just give up all your income to go and work on music. And you know what? It was cool for a while, but it, it, the financial constraints, not a lot of money in white rappers in Brisbane in 1998. No, there wasn't. <laughs> I, I can't imagine there's <laughs> much still. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, it's Let fun. No, it's, no it's parties, fun. but you're eating two-minute noodles on toast for every meal. Um, and then the financial constraints came into it. Obviously, it's hip-hop, so there's heaps of weed going down range. Everyone's smoking weed all the time, and the financial constraints just took their toll on some people that probably shouldn't have been smoking that much weed, like the guys running the group. And it got a little violent, and it just got so stressful. I couldn't do it anymore. I pulled the pin, and I, I, t- I set, did it at like a team meeting. And surprisingly enough, three other people, four other people put their hands up and said, yeah, we can't do this anymore. We're out as well. And so I was, I had to get out of that house and we had no money. We couldn't get a lease. Me and my buddy, um, John Somariva, who is now like a world famous comic artist. Um, he paid for our rent for a month 
by drawing pictures and characters of the real estate agent people. And so we had this house we were living in, no electricity, no running water. We had to shower at South Bank, putting $2 of petrol in the car. And finally, maybe a couple of months later, got a job working behind a bar at the Keg and Bull in uh, Kedron. And I, j- I just come full circle. I'd given up everything. I'd left home. I'd tried to st- strike out on a new life. And I was living next door to the bar and had no money. And I just, even though I didn't do well in high school, I was well read and I knew about the world. And I grew up watching David Attenborough and Albie Mangles and the Leyland brothers and all these um, incredible adventurers. And that, I knew this world was here. But I had no way of ever even living Brisbane because I couldn't even afford a flight to Canberra to go home. So um, that was when I was just really lost. I was I could feel myself slipping into de- a bit of depression because I knew what that was like from being a teenager. And so, out of desperation, I called mum, like you do when you're a bit lost, for some advice. And and she put me on to my brothers who were in the army, and they basically said, "No, you can't do it." So I did it. <laughs> He said, there's no way, we know you and there's no way you're going to be able to handle the discipline. But if you do it, don't join the infantry because you won't be able to take it. So I joined the infantry. And that was that was the start of a whole new life. Oh, mate, dude! I'll be you know I'll be forever grateful to the military, to yeah. the army, yep, for teaching me how to be a man, for te- teaching me how to be a valuable member of society, for giving me the value and purpose, and allowing me to serve my country. I, I couldn't have imagined my life without it. Now, tell me, tell me about the teaching me how to be a man part. Let's break that down a bit. Um, te- in my mind, being a man is about. It's about protecting and serving and helping and lifting other people up around you. Um, it's not about being the big tough guy. It's not about being the military guy. It's about being grateful for everything you have and wanting to use that to help other people around you. you know, so going to East Timor, for example, were my first trip overseas, and I'm going to a third world country as a UN peacekeeper, and to go there and see these people that have nothing, they, they collected their water from a tap in the street. They raked through our rubbish, which we'd set on fire with our like army socks on their hands to see what they could salvage. And yet th- these people were happy and they had nothing. And I, I took me so long to get my mind around it. Um, but they had each other. They had family, they had community, they had tribes. And that was what was most important to them. And everything else was second. And so being able to go there and learn the simple the simplicity of happiness and the rewards of serving others that would would never be able to repay me, that made me feel like a man. And when I walked down the street with my, my big-ass machine gun and my army uniform and I felt like a protector and I felt like a man, it, you know, it, you don't have to be the big dominating alpha male to be a man. But being the guy that protects the, the, the little people or the, not the little people, the, the, the people that perhaps can't look after themselves. That's what being a man is about to me, especially in that military scenario. Yeah. And you bring up the word service. So you've brought it up a few times. Mm. What is it to you to be of service? Because a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's like, what do you mean I've got to do something for somebody else? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I can almost directly correlate all of the good things that I have in my life now to things that I've done for other people that I've done selflessly without even thinking about it. Um, it's to the point now where I'm like, 
I don't want to think of the reward by of doing something for someone else, but I know the universe is going to bounce back and give me something amazing if I go and do all this good stuff. You know, it just happens. It's the way of the universe. I don't know if it's karma or you know, cosmic balance or whatever or God or whatever you want to call it. That's just how it works. And you've seen it too many times in your too life to deny it? Yeah. Yep. And even the simplest thing, like it doesn't have to be big. It just, you know, you do a little thing one day. I, I did a little, little favor for a friend. That afternoon, I ended up with free tickets to a comedy show. And just like stupid little things. And there's no way that it, it's a coincidence. It's, I've seen it too much. It's happened yeah. to me too much. Um, it doesn't happen every time. No, this you is would, true. You wouldn't want it to. Like, that's just, then you're doing it for yourself. But yeah, uh, service is just, it's not hard. It doesn't have to be a, a huge grand gesture. It can be taking uh, a friend for a coffee and being in a, a kind ear or someone to lean on or congratulating someone, you know, showing appreciation for someone else's hard work. The simplest thing can change that person's whole day, whole week or whole outlook on life just by a simple kind gesture. And that's service to me because, look, my story is no bigger or better than anyone else's. It's a little bit different. And we all go through battles and we all have fights and demons and stuff. You don't know whatever, you don't know what the person next to you is going through. So be a little kinder, be the light that you want to see in them. And perhaps that will be reflected back onto you and you can both be happy instead of just one of you. It just it, For me now, it's, it's so simple, but it, did, it took me a really long time to learn that and a lot of ups and downs. Is the converse also true? Very much, yeah. Life was shit when I was doing shit things. As a teenager, um, it... My mental state was not good. I was slashing my arms up uh, I, because I felt like I had no control. I was fighting. I was stealing. I was drinking. Uh, I was doing all bad things. I was a terrible person because it was all about me. It was always about what can I get for myself. Um, and so I felt alone and I felt like I had no control. And I, everything got on top of me. So most definitely, yeah, the converse is definitely true. And that, that kid, there was there elements of that kid when you showed up uh, at boot camp, and did he struggle a bit? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> that, I guess that's the kid your brothers were Holy more worried shit. about. Yeah, um, but the the thing was, I didn't have really a choice. You can't once you're in a, at boot camp. It's really hard to get out. You can maybe you can we and we have people do this. They said they were they were feeling psychotic and they wanted to kill people. You know, and they'll they'll pull you off course for that. Or perhaps you could fake a back injury because it's very hard to prove. Um, and people did that also. But for me, I was, I was never going to do that. I'm not, not going to act like a crazy psycho and tell everyone I want to kill them. So for me, I didn't really have a choice. And that in itself taught me something. Sometimes you have to not give yourself a choice. You're just going to do it. I, I didn't have a home to go back to. I had no money. I flunked high school. Didn't have any training or career prospects. So <laughs> what am I going to do? Am I going to run away and fight and make this harder on myself like I had previous to that? Or perhaps I could just try something new, try and change the way that I perceived the situation instead because fighting against it wasn't going to get me anywhere. And so I looked at the things that I did enjoy about it. I was a, a 23-year-old young man, you know, getting trained to run around the bush with a machine gun, blowing stuff up, hanging out with my buddies. And so I tried to focus on that, the good stuff, uh, the fact that my fitness was coming back to the fore. You know, not a lot of bombs in the army. And so you know, <laughs> we were doing fitness training. My fitness, I started getting stronger. And that in itself, the fitness aspect of it started to make me feel 
stronger emotionally and mentally as well because it got to the point where I was becoming so fit that I could help the the unfitter guys, the, the overweight guys that were perhaps struggling with their pack marches or struggling on the obstacle course. I'd run up, get to the obstacle course, I'd wait for the slow guys, help them over it, and then I'd get on with it myself. And I could do that over and over. And that made me feel, it gave me purpose, it gave me value. And that's one of the, the most important things that we find in our life, purpose and value. And, and that's what the military gave to me. But yeah, I did struggle. <laughs> I hated it, hated it. Just the little things like getting – the first morning we woke up to the sound of a machine gun in the hallway. Scared the shit out of me. And then, and then after they stopped firing, they played that song, I Was Only 19, oh. over the loudspeaker <laughs> in the hallway. And everyone just laid in their bed in the first morning thinking, holy fuck, this is – you know, it was the first time I'd heard that song. Yeah, really? And it really, it really touches you. And so that was a catalyst for a whole new life. But – having to fold up your socks a certain way, fold your underwear a certain way, have everything, you know, in its designated spot in your cupboard. Bed has to be made to a, a, a certain standard with hospital corners. You've got 15 minutes to scratch your face off with a razor and shower and clean the bathroom and 15 minutes to eat. And it was just so regimented and so hard, um, especially coming from running my own routine for so long. Yeah. But got through it. You know, it's amazing what we can get through. What does um now? I it's not that, but I find that if I'm ragged, and certainly when I got when I got quite sick, the thing that saved me was discipline. In fact, even planning my next day before I go to bed, I plan it to the minute, yeah. and then the next day, all I had to do was just do what was on my list. Oh yeah, um, lists are so helpful. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's interesting that you know within that discipline that people think it's oppressive, but there's actually great freedom mm-hmm. in discipline because. Yeah. That, yeah, I find that I, I don't like decision points. And if there's too many of them, I, uh-huh. I get choice paralysis and I'm stuck and I can't yeah. do anything. But if I make those decisions in a cold state or I'm removed from that, like tomorrow when I go to coals, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And it's all done. Yeah. I don't have to be stuck in front of an aisle going, which peanut butter do I put? <laughs> well, uh, it must be so much easier now you're back in Australia because there is no choice. Well, no, that's, that's not true. There's a, there's a lot of – It's not like walking into Whole Foods and having 15,000 different brands of peanut butter. Yeah, with the second mortgage on my house to pay for it. Uh, the just, just to before we move on, there was one other thing that you mentioned that in Australia, it's unfortunately been hijacked by, in many ways, like the, the Southern Cross Tattoo Brigade, Australia for Australians, kind of, you know, to be proud and to want to serve your country mm. without, and, you know, it seems that that's kind of really been labeled as like this, if you love Australia, then suddenly you're in this kind of really jingoistic, you know, no brown people can come here kind of thing. Yet there is an ability. I love my country. Uh, I became Australian in 99 because I love this country so much and I'd do anything for this country. Yet it's so much of that kind of love of country, unfortunately, now comes with, well, you must be like, no, there's other ways. Yeah, I think that is um, largely in part to everything that we have focused on in our lives through the media. Because the media has this magnifying glass on things which creates huge situations in our culture and in the minds of our citizens that might not be 100% accurate. It's just that they've put the microscope on that. It's exactly like sharks. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they, sharks are not a huge problem. Uh, they're not a problem at all. They're like a, mate, a beautiful part of the ecosystem out there all around our country. I swim with them. I dive with them. I hand feed them. They're incredible. So few people die of sharks and yet everyone's so terrified of them because of what the media does. It's, it's like that. I think it's just a microscope over a, something that the media can sell newspapers and get, you know, it's clickbait. So I don't think that's true. I don't think it's the, you know, the Cronulla riots, um, Southern Cross tattoo, Bogan Australians, you know, that there is that element there, but you get that in America as well, very much so. And I bring that up because I'm living there now and, and you used to live there, um, just for anyone that wonders why I keep going back to that. But I think patriotic pride is is an incredible thing. It, it's something I taught. I didn't really give a shit. You know, I wasn't much of a patriot. I was just trying to get through life before I joined the military. Um, but then I felt that when I, I put on that you know, the uniform and had the Australian flag on my arm, it made me feel like um, you know, I, w- I was most definitely a representative of my country and it made me per- like perform better. It made me behave better because I was in the eye of people that would judge my country by the way that I acted. And I think that, that helped me a lot being um, becoming a, a very hardcore patriot to Australia. Like we have one of the most incredible countries in the world. It's so stunning. And the more you travel, the more you realise this. Yeah. I love coming home. I don't, I don't do it as much anymore, maybe once or twice a year. But it's just, no, you, you can't go anywhere around the world and have this lifestyle and, and the, the beautiful heart of this country that we have. Um, you use the word patriot. It's got, it's, you know, for, it's quite hung over from in many, you know, we're obviously exposed to a lot of American pop culture here in this country. So it's, it, there's a bit of a hangover of what patriot means. Mm. But to the, I, I, I love my country so much and I will do anything I could to protect the life that we have here yeah. for everyone that lives here. Does that make me a patriot? Yeah. I guess it does. Mm. Am I going to, you know, wave a flag? Ah, maybe not. No, no not really a flag waver. <laughs> uh, not really a, a fist pumper either. Like you, just, uh, you don't have to be loud and proud about it. Um, you, know? but you just you do the best you can by yeah. all of the people around you. And you know what? Something I learned something. I have learned a lot about interacting with people um, by living in America, actually. Australia is, it's an odd place. I feel like... The further north you go, the warmer it is and the friendlier people are. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know Absolutely. What it is, but maybe Sydney is an exception because it's not like you go further south to Melbourne and people are just assholes. Um, but living in America, people are really, really friendly to each other for the most part that I've seen. You know, people are cunts as well, but I've never seen strangers get into so many conversations just randomly in the street, in the oh, line yeah. at the supermarket. Oh, yeah. like, they get into full-blown conversations with the whole line, with yeah. the, the tellers, everything. And that really surprised me because I don't really talk to str- – I never really talk to strangers that much here and going to places like um, – you know, I train up at Fitness First at Bondi and everyone seems to be – a lot of people seem to be posturing up there and very stern-faced and no one's very friendly. Oh, that, that gym is quite the podium. Yeah. Yeah. But what I did was by – you know, I train at Gold's in Venice now and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger says hello to me. I'm there that much and I'm fr- – it's like a little family for me. And I was – I just thought, you know, I'm going home soon. I'm going to take some of this – 
friendliness back to fitness first. And I'm just going to see what happens. And I, I went there and I started smiling. I just started saying hi to random people and they're the biggest dude in the gym and the good looking girls that I'd usually be afraid of. And I'm like, I don't want anything from you. I'm just, I'm, that, I think that's one of the biggest things. People think if you say hello to them and you want to talk to them, they want, you want something from them. Yeah. And so I did that and it was amazing how fast the walls came down and how many people I, I became, you know, not friends with, but common acquaintances with. Yeah. And we'd stop and have a chat more and more and more. So I think if, um, if we just let those walls come down a little bit more, it's going to be nicer for everyone and we can show people that, you know, the, the people around us that it, it's just nice to be happy and smiley and friendly with everyone. You don't have to be that stern-faced asshole. That, that you, even if you're not an asshole, you're just a stern face who doesn't want to talk to anyone. Just, you know, just say hi to people, just smile and wave. And it's just, it makes life so much easier, I found personally. For, for, for everyone. For everyone. For, yeah. for everybody. Yeah, you feel more welcome in your community and wherever you are if you, people just say hi to you. It's really weird. I, <laughs> I didn't think LA was going to be like that. But I walk down the street and every day I would say, and a stranger will walk past me and smile or say hello or hope you have a great day or what. You know, it's weird. Yeah. Didn't expect it from America, especially LA. It, it is interesting. And I don't know if you found that, but when I was over there, and I know you've traveled over there a fair bit, like within the country, when I was over there, somehow when I did a survey of all the greatest friends and the best people I knew, all Texan. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> my, my dad's best mate in Abu Dhabi was Texan. Um no, I don't. I have some friends that are the, they are from down south. My best friends, one of them lives in Georgia, and the other one lives in Alabama. There's something about it. Yeah, that down south hospitality. Yeah, really. Yeah, my girlfriend's a southern girl. She's from Virginia. All right. It's a it's a it's a interesting part of the world if you've ever travelled through there. Oh yeah. Uh, when I was through there, that people still flying Confederate flags in front of their houses. I'm like, <laughs> I, you know, there's parts of Europe where that flag would be outlawed oh yeah you know because of what it represents but you know so it's definitely this it's an extraordinary country to be in mm -hmm. um i'm grateful that i spent time there though i it was time for me to go yeah when it was time because I got, I got really sick and i was really quite far from home and i was like oh, i just can't i couldn't really couldn't really deal yeah uh, so it was so it was time to go i'm wondering how long that's going to take me as well you know, <laughs> how long until i've just i really love living over there um just and i went for career um, yeah. Just because I got to a certain point here where I was traveling and speaking a lot, I'd left the Navy and I'd go to events and, you know, a couple of people might come up to me and say, oh, Paul, so good to see you again. I, you know, this is going to be like the third time I've heard you speak. And I just thought, that sucks. You know, I, I don't want to be that guy that's, you know, just being recycled through yeah. events. And, and so I thought, you know what, I need, I need a chance to grow. Uh, and I've been doing a tiny little bit of television, like one show a year for Discovery Channel. And the opportunity came to do, had to have my own show on Nat Geo Wild. But the boss of Discovery Channel at the time basically said, if you go to Nat Geo, the competitor, you'll never work on Discovery Channel again. And I was like, that's a fucking asshole. And so anyway, um, we did some negotiations. I ended up getting a, a two-year contract with Discovery Channel. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, I, I get a chance to grow. I, I got a visa out to America for two years. They've just um, renewed that for another two years and the shows keep getting more involved. I become more of a part of it now. I'm starting to speak a little more out there. Uh, and it just helped my career grow and me personally uh, with the confidence to be in front of the camera, with the confidence to realize that 
I, I could do something outside of the military that is still service orientated. Mate, you as far as as far as changing people's perceptions, you have this like people. I mean, as you would have no doubt learned in your military training, you make all these decisions before you even realised it within so many nanoseconds of laying eyes yeah. on someone. Right? People look at you, and you're this this massive, you know, very very muscular half robot, <laughs> you know, with this big smile. Yeah. A little bit, little bit, little bit. And, and, then, and that's why I can't get angry at people for staring at me. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm just – it's the, the open mouth starers that get me the most. Yeah. Um, and you probably just get this because you're a public figure, but I get the, you know, people just open mouth staring at me and that's kind of rude. But when other people just look at me and they're staring at me, I can't even get mad because if I saw a half-robot dude walking down the street, I would want to look too and I'd be curious. So. Yeah. But you but, just be – it goes back to that being friendly again. You just yeah. say hi instead of getting angry and saying, what the fuck are you looking at? <laughs> but you have this extraordinary opportunity because people look at you, all right, and then if within 30 seconds of speaking with you, if, if you are open to sharing or if they recognize you, they go, hang on, here's this guy. He got half eaten by a shark. He's now a half robot and he's this <laughs> – conservationist, you know, guy, vegan guy. Yeah, if there's weird. anyone in the world who deserves to be angry at charge, it's him, but he's gone the other way. Like if that's not going to change how someone looks at their day, you know, and like when I, I had breakfast with someone I used to work with this morning, when I said, oh, this guy's coming around today and I showed her a picture of you, you deadlifting nearly 300 pounds <laughs> with one hamstring. And she's like, yeah, I've got no excuse. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with a little motivation through guilt. <laughs> I think it can be a powerful motivator, even for me. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've seen probably the best and the worst of um, humanity. Um, and I've seen some incredibly inspiring and motivating things through exactly the same circumstances that people would be motivated by me. I get motivated the same way, going to the Marine Corps games for two years and, and kicking all their asses. Um, but... But spending time with people that have no legs, they've been blown up, you know, they live, they're in wheelchairs, they're blind, they've got no arms and they're winning, you know, this guy with no arms won a gold medal in archery. And he shot with his mouth. My buddy Brad, who got blown up, he's got someone else's lung, he's got the stomach of a pig you know, he's, and he's out there competing in, in wheelchair basketball and, the, you know, that inspires the shit out of me and when people might do be motivated by what you just said about me, I'm the same way as other people. Yeah. You know, I, I need a little bit of a, a motivation through guilt sometimes as well. That's fine by me because <laughs> I, you, you just got to be able to identify that and use it. Like it, it a tool is only as good as you know, how often you use it. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to that discipline we were talking about, yeah. you know, creating that, um, that habit. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You, the, the people that you uh, have just described and you yourself uh, have, have been through probably what, what many people uh, listening will never, ever, ever, ever go through. Yet 
what have you learned about about acceptance through what happened to you? Uh, acceptance. I don't know, I've never really thought about acceptance. Um, I don't. I don't accept. I, I don't, it depends on the context of what you mean. Like, well, I do mean, I have to accept my injuries? This is what I'm talking about. No, yeah. I don't have to accept. Do I have to accept being disabled? Fuck no. I don't. I don't feel disabled. I don't. I don't feel like I look disabled. And maybe if I take all my limbs off, you catch me hopping around the house on one leg. Maybe, but I don't accept that because I am more able than most of the people walking down the street. Mm. Uh, just because. I've been injured severely. It doesn't matter. That's fine. I, mentally and emotionally, I'm stronger than I've ever been. And I do things in my life and my career that normal people, well, not normal, just anyone, like the average person will never get to do. Half the time, they would never want to do it. Mm. <laughs> like drifting through, I was drifting through the Atlantic Ocean a couple of months ago. No food, no water. They were chumming, so surrounded by, by a school of sharks the whole time. People don't want to do that. I didn't want to do it at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, shit, I really did that. That was freaking cool. Um, and the show did so well. Now they want to up the ante. And uh, as soon as I get back to the States, I'm going through uh, intensive parachute training course so they can crash a plane with me in it. And I can you know, drift through the, the South Pacific trying to survive for a couple of days with my buddy James. So I don't feel like my, my running up and down stairs. Yes, I cannot do that. So perhaps I'm disabled because I can't do that. I know plenty of overweight people that can't do it either. So physically, you know, whatever. I, I don't accept. I don't accept I'm disabled. I don't accept I can do less than you. Uh, I do accept that I had to learn how to tie my shoelaces with one hand. I do accept I had to learn how to write left-handed. But there's no obstacle that is so great in any of our lives that you cannot go around it, over it, or straight through it with the right tools. And, and sometimes that tool's just the right mindset. That, that is the absolute motivator, you know, the absolute tool that you can use. You can, our minds are so strong. I, I just created this whole new life that I could have never believed because I, I chose to in my mind. Was there anyone around you that helped you come to that or was it just did it pop into your head one day? I think little little piecemeal comments. Little comments always help um, throughout the years. Uh, one of my best friends, Steve Dallacosta, uh, when I was in hospital, you know, I remember this all the time. He said, never feel bad about feeling bad. There's nothing wrong with feeling bad. Just just feel bad, but don't let it ruin your, your week or your life. You know, feel bad, identify why, and then maybe fix it. Or move on, you know, be a problem solver. You know, sometimes you have to ask yourself um, questions and then answer them as well. You know, these questions we ask ourselves are not hypothetical. Why am I not happy? You don't just ask yourself that question and then move on. You know, why am I not happy? Identify it, problem solve it. You know, there, there are ways to get through anything in life. Um, so life is different. Life is somewhat harder sometimes but it's also so much more rewarding. If you can push past those self-imposed boundaries that you have, and, and most of them are self-imposed. From the way we were brought up, the way we choose to see the world? Everything from maybe it's, it's one particular event. For me, the shark attack was a huge turning point in my life. 
but I'm not defined by it. It it opened up a, a whole new world of opportunity and possibility, um, but it also it changed it in a, a in a not so great way. So I don't know. I just I, I don't think that those horrible, terrible events that some of us go through sometimes have to be negative for the rest of our lives. Right? We get stronger because of those struggles. We don't get weaker. We actually get stronger. We, we can identify and realize how much we've been through and use that as a tool to make ourselves stronger for the future instead of break, letting it break us, ourselves down. I have a, the shark attack sucked. It was a really shit day at work. But I get so much free beer because of it. <laughs> so I see that as a positive. What, uh, Paul, what do you remember, like, from what I know of your story, you, you chose pretty boldly to get back in the water. Somewhat, yeah. Well, I went back in the water at Bondi uh, three months to the day after the shark attack. Um, I, just, I had my eight-foot board and my two mates with me. And I was hopping down through the soft sand and everyone was staring at me. And the paparazzi were there because it was just kind of fresh. It was like the first time I'd been out really in public down the beach and um, they were taking photos. And I was so embarrassed. I was, I was so self-conscious that people were, were seeing me like that with one leg on, hopping, very vulnerable. But... I told myself that I wasn't going to let the things that I was afraid of stop me from doing the things I love. And so I just, I gripped my teeth um, and I got down to the water. I'm like, I'm, going, I'm doing this. I'm going for a surf. And I looked at my missing hand and I just whispered my, to myself, please don't let me paddle around in a circle. And <laughs> I got smashed by every wave for about 45 minutes. And... Um, Eventually, I got out the back. You know, my, my blood was pumping. And my, I was sweating. I was out of breath. And my friends were there smiling at me. And the sun was out. And I was at Bondi. And it's beautiful. And I just thought, this is living. And it doesn't matter how hard it was to get here. It only mattered that I got here. And I'd been out of the water for three months. And that's a long time for a neighbor diver to be out of the water. So I, I, was, I, I was so happy to be back in there. And there's, there's never been a time now where I've worried about sharks. And previous to that, I was terrified of sharks. Every time I got in the water with the Navy, I was like, it, I had sharks in the brain. Um, but I had a job to do. So you get on with it and you focus on the task. And now I just like, I, I think there's something that happens when you come that close to death. You can go one of two ways. You either curl up in a ball and you're afraid of everything and you let it cripple you. Or you realize that there's just nothing left to be afraid of. I discovered that death is not scary. In, in the most violent of horrific and painful ways, death was not what I was afraid of. Because once I accepted it when I was underwater, in agony, being torn apart, I was drowning at the same time and I accepted that I wasn't going home and calm washed over me. And I, the, the thing that I was concerned about most was, am I ready? And I thought about my life and I realised that I'd lived... 10 lives in these 31 years. I'd done more in my life than I ever thought possible. So, yeah, if I'm going to die now, I'm good to go. I don't need to do any more. You know, I've, I've made up for all the wrongs that I've done as far as I'm concerned and I can die now. And then I didn't die. 
So now it's like, dude, I got a, a second chance at this. Why would I limit myself? And if you can get into that mindset without going to that, you know, that brink of death, just realize that you have a chance to do everything that you absolutely fucking want in your whole life right now. Well, then why wouldn't you do it? That's why I moved to America. That's why I risked my life making documentaries and um, showing the world about sharks and conservation and protecting what you love and being happy and helping people because that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I see as the best thing I can do before I die again <laughs> so that I don't have any regrets. And if that, that's the biggest thing. Don't be afraid of dying. Never be afraid of dying. Don't worry about that shit. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. And it might be tomorrow. It might be you know, 20 years, 50 years down the track. But don't have regrets. You know? Be afraid of not living. Speaking of uh, – when you speak about the fear, what does our irrational fear of sharks say about us as humans, do you think? What do sharks represent to us? Why are we so afraid of them? Well, because getting – Eaten alive hurts. Yes, it of course. It really hurts. <laughs> I'm not you. I will guarantee you that. I will believe you 100% here, Paul DeGelder. <laughs> uh, it, it, look, it's partially because of the media and everyone comes back to Jaws. Oh, Jaws ruined sharks. I, I don't, you know, some people, yes, but as a whole, I, I don't think but so. But you, you can go to the, the North Strawberry Island Point Lookout Surf Club and uh, around the walls, because I used to stay there in school holidays when mm. I was a kid, around the walls there are uh, typed out accounts of shark attacks that go all the way back to the start of the, um, you know, the club in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. So a, well before Jaws, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's an innate fear of being eaten alive by a wild animal. And because it's so close to home, because we, as Australians, we all, we, we're a coastal people. Mm. We all grow up going to the beach, well, most of us. And that is the one uncontrollable we have in that situation. Well, that and drowning, but, you know, if, if you go out into the ocean, you can't swim, you're, you're an idiot. But you cannot control that. Mm. A shark is, is going to do what it wants. And you are in an alien, alien environment. And when they latch onto you, you realize how pow powerless you are in, in that scenario. So it's, it's a fear of something that we can't control and something that can kill us, really. But be smart, mm. having personal responsibility of your actions and knowing where you are and what you know what you're doing and if there's sharks in the area you, that's that's the control that you take back talk to the surf lifesavers find out if there's been sharks in the area like the shark attack that just happened on the Sundays. the second one was in the same area why was why was she swimming in the same area as the shark attack the, the day after and that's personal responsibility um the 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 and and council responsibility too because there should have been i don't know if there was but there should have been a lot more warnings for people in that area about the possibility of a dangerous shark being there but people either love them or they hate them mm. and, and it's hard to change someone's mind um i often wonder like when these guys that made their name like when i grew up in in queensland Vic that, that's the guy's name um would go on tour with this gigantic uh, semi-trailer, refrigerated semi-trailer with this humongous animal. Mm. Uh, and he was, you know, he, he made his living off of North Strabroke Island. That's mm. where he got all these, these yeah, animals. he said he wanted to be the uh, person that killed the last shark on the planet. Yeah, I'm like, what is going on in your life that you want to try and- Why all the hate? Yeah, like what, 
what what happened to you as a kid? Yeah. You know, I wonder what it is that when I ask about you know sharks, what is it? Is it is it because this is a, a, a picture and a name that we can give to a fear that we have within us about not being in control of our destiny? But ah, it's a shark. It's not. It's the fact that you might not like your job, or you might like this, or you might like that. I wonder if it just comes out. He's identified and latched onto that yeah. emotion and that person, yeah. and he has nothing else. That's yeah. why. Because yeah. he is Vicky Slop, the shark hunter. And so he he has become that person. And yeah. that it's it's not a healthy mindset to live in. That negativity and that hate and that anger and that want, wanting to destroy, I mean, that's, that's not inherently a, a human, yeah. like a healthy emotion to want to destroy. You know, mass murderers usually started by killing animals and torturing animals. Yeah. That's how I look at it, and that's that's you know one of many reasons why I decided to go plant based, because it's just not healthy to want to kill things, and if you can't kill it yourself, then why would you expect someone else to do it when it's when it's so needless? There's the, the that stigma, and this goes back to the whole being a man thing as well, protecting, serving, the, the big men got to eat meat and all that's bullshit. I, I just don't. I don't identify with that anymore. You can be a man and you can be protective and you can be of service and all of that stuff in every aspect of your life. And not just to other people, but to everything on the planet. As much as you can. It's not perfect. It's about progression. Absolutely. When it, when it comes to pulling those enormous animals out of the ocean, because uh, I'm sure there's people listening that will be like, yeah, fuck yeah. I, I, I like my summer holidays to be shark free. You know, I'm sorry that a whale got caught in the net, but that's the price you pay. Yeah. What does it do? What does it do to the ecosystem when you pull that size of an animal off the top of the chain there? What happens? It just helps to collapse it. You know, they, there's um, a certain hierarchy of how things work. And this has been documented in many places around the world. You, you remove an apex predator like a shark. So, and people go, oh, okay, yeah, it sounds great. Like, it disrupts the ecosystem, but how? And so a couple of the examples that I like to use is that there's three that are, that are quite good ones. I actually think it was up in the Sundays. In the 70s, the fishermen started killing all of the tiger sharks. So all of the tiger sharks were gone. There was nothing to eat the sea turtles. The sea turtles ate all of the seagrass and the manatees were starving to death. So you're disrupting, unnaturally disrupting the ecosystem. Um, in a town in America, fishing village, the fishermen killed all the sharks. There was no sharks to eat the rays. Uh, the ray population exploded, started eating all of the scallops, uh, and the, the mollusks collapsed the scalloping industry. People lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They went bankrupt. And that was as a result of killing the apex predator. So there's a certain balance that, that we disrupt um, when we, we shouldn't be injecting ourselves into that. Uh, so in untold ways... You, you might not be able to predict it until it actually happens. Yeah. So it's just, you know, I, I, I love the the doctor motto slash mantra, whatever, whatever it is, of do no harm. And I think that we can utilise that a lot more in yeah. our everyday lives. The analogy might be, um, oh, yeah, we're damming this river so we've got water to drink, mm -hmm. yet we have no clue of what, 80 kilometres downstream in the river mouth there, 
when we're restricting the flow of that water, what we're doing yeah. to, to that. Yeah. We, it's un, we have no idea. Is, is that a nutrient-rich water that you're yeah. going to block and starve to death um, a whole ecosystem downriver? Is there animals yeah. that are going to suffer? Yeah, you just – yeah, that's why the, 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 there's so much more research need to be done before we do things like that, like driving the coal – um, ships through the Great Barrier Reef like they're doing. You know, the, the current government slashed marine parks by 50%. The um, Adani coal mine was just increased by 20% directly after 91 scientists have come to a, a, an agreement and a study saying that we need to reduce coal or we're going to decimate the Earth's climate in the next 50 years. And what does Australia do? Hold my beer. Let's increase coal by 20%. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, what would you? You know, you're you're someone. As I said before, people clock you, and then you have their attention for you know a minute and a half, two minutes, right? More than most other people. People, you know, you don't blend in. I'm the so surprised. Nike or someone hasn't tried to brand me because whether you know who I am or not, everyone fucking stares at me. Well, what I'm saying is like you would be able to go face to face with a politician and you could have their ear. What would you say to someone like our Prime Minister or someone like our Minister for Energy or someone like that? Man, I would have to sit down and write out that speech so I covered all my bases. (laughs) Um, Fortunately, there are far smarter people than me doing this work. Um, Justin Fields working tirelessly to to try and help the environment and working in parliament and, you know, I, I would, I just don't have the time to do that stuff. To I, I don't have the knowledge or the patience to be writing out all of these things. So my, what I can do is I can support that and I can talk about it in situations like this and I can go on television I can you know I don't want to be a politician I've found myself walking in the footsteps of some of my heroes Steve Irwin like the people I spoke about earlier you know David Attenborough the power that I have through this this media is sharing a passion and like Steve Irwin said if you can get people to fall in love with something then they'll want to protect it so my job is to make people fall in love with the planet that we have and the animals that we're having. Hopefully give them a passion, especially these young kids. I get so many letters and and messages on social media from these kids who just, they want to know how to be a part of it because they so love our our planet and the animals and the diversity we have. And they just, you know, they they are the future that we're going to have. So if I can inject a little bit of this passion and love into their lives and their minds, then perhaps we're not going to destroy it all. Hopefully we'll have some very, very smart kids growing up now that can continue the work of protecting. Do you ever and I, I'm I'm projecting this, you know, but I'm, you know, I I get very worried about this stuff to the point where it can paralyze me sometimes. In fact, that's how I got really, really ill. Okay. Uh, that was my my big trigger. I, I I was experiencing paranoid delusions. I was living in Venice Beach at the time. I was experiencing paranoid delusions and episodes of psychosis. I fully believed that the sea level was going to rise today. Holy shit. It was very scary. Wow. It was very How did you get to that point? It was a long path and that's why, you know, I wrote a book about it rather than a blog post. Yeah. Because it took a long time to get to that point. Um, wasn't just because you were surrounded by all the crazy at Venice Beach. Because uh, no, there's a lot of crazy there. There is, but, you know, it was actually one of those guys that I, I was jogging on the, you know, because that was my 
and it still is now, exercise is a big part of managing my head. And I went out for a run that day and I was, the thoughts were coming so painfully and I was starting to flinch and, you know, my eyes were blinking in different wow. directions and I was swatting, trying to swat the thoughts away. I was like really, really painful and, and inside my body and, and I'm, I'm running and I'm seeing all these things that weren't real and as Baywatch Towers, I saw them like as if they were on a mooring line and like kind of bobbing against the tide as if we were all underwater already. It was really frightening. And then I run past this bloke and um, he's got no shirt on. He's shuffling along his pants size, like three sizes too big. So, you know, he's <laughs> clearly lost a lot of weight living on the street. He's peed his pants. Huh? Um, oh, my God. He's younger than me. Yeah. He hasn't shaved in, you know, a long time, but he's doing exactly the same thing. He's swatting and flinching and I'm like, fuck, I'm I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm in a lot of trouble because I 100% believed it was going to happen. Um, that's a really confronting thing being there. Yeah. Seeing these people on the street and... Living with psychosis, living with schizophrenia unmedicated, it's full on. Yeah. It's really tough and we're really lucky in this country uh -huh. that, that, still, that still exists. There are people that do end up on the street um, with complex mental illness, but by and large we are... It's nothing compared to the complex mental illness that happens on the streets in, in the States. Yeah. Some of those places look like The Walking Dead. It's really hard. Yeah. Those people and are very sick. It's, but it's, it's, you, sometimes I feel like it's only you know, a blink away like, from you being that yeah. because I'm sure they didn't plan that life for themselves either. No way. <laughs> yeah, but that's really scary. It's, um, yeah, you're right. We are super lucky here. Even though we do have yeah. a big homeless problem, a big mental health problem, it's just absolutely amplified over there. So I guess that's what I'm trying to ask you is like if I, I – and I, I make a joke about it sometimes. I kind of wish that I was having paranoid delusions about scaffolding or geese or something that was fairly benign. <laughs> but I had, I had this extraordinary – The destruction of the planet. This extreme, extreme response to something that it's okay – to be rightly quite worried about mm. um, and trying to find that balance is very, I find it very difficult. And My problem is sometimes I feel like I don't care enough now yeah. because I f it's, it's, it's like banging your head against a, a wall over and over and over, caring so much that you want to protect it and then seeing the way that people treat the planet. And you're just like, how, why am I even bothering with these people? Yeah. Because they don't care. Yeah. They will go out and they will hunt sharks for fun. And they have competitions in America to see who can get the biggest shark. And I'm like, that animal's probably 30 years old. And you just go out there with your mates and you just kill it for fun. Like, but that's why the job's so important. That's why people, my friends that work in this industry, people like Madison Stewart, you know, she is an incredible young girl. She has been going over to Indonesia trying to change the, the fishing industry there by taking, on, taking people on surfing and shark swimming tours, utilizing the fishermen and their boats so that they can make money through tourism instead of killing animals. Right. That sort of mindset, that sort of yeah. determination to make a change in something that you care about is incredible. Yeah, my uh, my mother-in-law was, was here on the weekend with us and um, I was telling her about when I was uh, diving in, in Indonesia once and I, I got to see the mola mola. I got to see a, sun, oh, yeah. a sort of uh -huh. sunfish. It was humongous. And she goes, oh, I saw one once at the Sydney fish market. Oh, my God. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Like it's come up in a net. Yeah. This humongous animal, the size of a living room rug, mm -hmm. you know, probably 30, 40 years old. You know, completely benign animal, not hurting anyone, <laughs> nah. 
just kind of curious. Might uh-huh. come and check you out if you're scuba diving and yeah. then scoot away And again. what do we do? We go and kill it. And it's come up in a net. Oh. It's come up in a net. Uh, people, you know, and I, I do talk about this a bit. Um, and, uh, I've been plant based since 2002 because of the very reason of I don't want my diet, you know, try to do as little harm as I can. Yeah. Um, what would people listening to you right now, what would you say to them about the things that they can do in their life to take care of this ball of water and dirt that we're flying through space on? Most people don't want to hear it. The single greatest thing you can do is stop eating meat and dairy. And it's the simplest thing. It doesn't cost you any money. It takes a little bit of time. It takes a lot of education. But it's so worth it. And I don't like to be the preachy guy um, because people are going to do what they want to do. Some people have written to me, though, and told me that just by listening to a podcast or a conversation or whatever, they have gone vegan. And I never thought I would. I didn't even know what vegan meant when I first heard it. I changed because people that I respect educated me. They they didn't force it on me. They just explained to me why they did it. So that's, you know, if people ask, that that's what I do. I explain why I did it. They're going to do whatever they want. I... I had a perception that you couldn't you couldn't maintain muscle mass for starters. I think that was the biggest barrier for me. You couldn't maintain muscle mass. So I, I educated myself and I, I went to – I was in Africa uh, filming a documentary about hunting poachers and I was working with Damien Manda who runs the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. He's an ex-Navy diver as well. And he was vegan or well, he is vegan. And I couldn't believe it because he's an enormous man. And so talking to him slightly changed my perception. Then talking to some other people, my buddy um, uh, Harry Gold, who's a celebrity bodyguard, um, he's vegan. He's an enormous man as well. Uh, Rich Roll. And, and you just, I just started – it just started popping up. It's, a, it's amazing how once you get in tuned to something, it just keeps popping up in your life. And so the seeds were planted and I tried it and I failed in two days. And it went away for a little while and then it came up, came back again. And so I decided to give it another crack and slowly but surely I did it. And that is the single easiest, most impactful way you can help the planet is just by stopping eating animals. We could feed the, the whole planet on the amount of land we've cleared already to feed us and animals because what is it, like 70% of all the, the beans and grains and all that we create go to animals so that people can eat meat. And it's just, it, it's not about, like I said, it's not about being perfect. It's not about, you know, animals are going to die. It sucks, you know, but that's what happens when you're farming. It's about doing as, as least harm as possible. And I see that as, you know, I, I don't need that in my life. I don't, I don't need the antibiotics that they're feeding to these animals. I don't need the hormones. I don't need the, the, the DDT or whatever chemicals it is that they're putting into, into the, the chickens. And the, it's just, I don't want it. I don't need that fear. I don't need that anxiety. I haven't had a serious injury from training in three years since I, I went plant-based. That tells me enough. I haven't dropped weight. I feel healthy. It wasn't any any big thing. Like people go plant-based and they, they say, oh, man, I just I feel amazing. I got so much more energy. That didn't really change, but didn't but it didn't go up, it didn't go down. I'm just I'm just good. So I think that um, if you can do it, if you can lessen the amount of meat, 
if you can you know slow down your dairy or whatever i don't think it's just going to help the environment i think it's going to help you as well as a person you can go for yeah you can go for the the your long-term longevity yeah you know and and do you want to die of an illness that only exists in uh the part of the world where we eat it the way we do because you got other parts of the world where they don't eat the way we do they don't die of these illnesses mm. we do you can go selfish that's fine with me yeah. go right ahead um or which or something it was it was exactly that well, in 97 98 when i first found out about and I, I took me quite a while to go fully plant-based like yourself. But when I first found out about, hang on, we, how, how much food that people could eat? Are we feeding to animals that we then kill to eat? Yeah. That, what, what, that makes no sense. Yeah. And all that grain and food that you feed, they feed to the animals, um, a lot of that corn, that soybean and stuff that they feed them. So people, weren't, people are scared of tofu. You know, the animals that you eat are eating that tofu. All <laughs> Tofu is, it's, you know, they have this perception about the, the estrogen stuff. It's, it's, it, it's bullshit. It's, it's all bullshit. Talk me through that because that's a big thing that I've seen. A, a, and I won't get into too many fights online. Yeah. I'll just go like, here's this research paper. Yeah, it's just that's what that. I do as well. So I don't, I, man, as, mon, as, as many times as I've read this, I cannot, I can't keep that knowledge in my head of it's, it's some, it's a different type of estrogen. It's a phytoestrogen. It's, it's a phytoestrogen. They get, you know, it's all I need to know is that it's bullshit. That belief that we've been given that tofu gives you man boobs and estrogen, it's, a, it's all bullshit. I eat tofu all the fucking time. I yeah. do not have man boobs. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm, you do I, not. I do not find myself crying in a corner, like lactating. All right? so, <laughs> and I eat it probably every freaking day. So um, all that food that we feed those animals yeah. is the mass-produced factory food from Monsanto that yeah. has DDT in it and all those chemicals that they're yeah. pouring into your food. Uh, why would you do it if you didn't need to? Why? people And people just love eating meat. And I get it. You know, we, we did it for decades. I did it for a long time, yeah. So, you know, but why would you do something if you know it's harmful? I, I've got these guys I know that are on the carnivore diet. Have you heard of that one? So it's strictly meat. And they promote, they promote the carnivore diet. And I, I know this guy, um, Chris Bell, uh, he did the documentary Bigger, Stronger, Faster and um, Prescription Thugs. It's all this stuff on Netflix. He, he promotes a carnivore diet. And I don't know enough about the science behind it. I, like they have, they have all these studies that they show about how it's not, um, it's not the meat that's giving you making you fat and giving you illnesses and all that stuff. Uh, I don't know if it's cherry picked or whatever, but then he gets on Instagram and he shows photographs of his in and out burger patties lathered in sliced packet cheese and says it's healthy. Like I, his quote is, I love eating healthy. And I just go, how, how can you see that as healthy? It's processed cheese with meat from the biggest factory farm in California where they, they like it's scientifically proven. They always talk about the heart disease and stuff not being a problem. Fine, okay. I'm not sure about that. You, that's, you seem to believe it. Everyone else doesn't seem to believe that. But what about the colorectal cancer that has been proven to be caused by meat and all you're doing is eating meat for every meal? I'm just like, no, it's just... Can't be good. Oh, I can't be good. Uh, I understand that there's some situations where that sort of um, 
what do they call it where they it's a restriction diet or something like that you know there's a young girl who had crippling illnesses like very bad joint problems and sicknesses and she switched to all meat and all of her illnesses went away and fine okay i get it do you do what works um i hope that you don't get cancer i don't want anyone to get cancer but the science proves that it's not good for you so why would you do it it's proven that a whole foods plant-based diet is the best diet you can eat wouldn't you want to have the healthiest life and the healthiest mind and the healthiest body that you can for you and your family and it's just we've we've been programmed by decades and decades and decades of living the way that our parents lived just because that's the way we've always done it so that's why we'll always do it it's it's just inaccurate you're ab ab absolutely true. And it's interesting that, you know, while you are very much a conservationist in the, in the marine uh, environment um, that you're talking about, it's the land animals to, to stop eating because it, that seems to me and the way I, why I see it, fish don't make methane as far as I know. Well, not too much. No, I don't think so. <laughs> not um, the levels that cattle No, well, animal agriculture is the, the biggest polluter. Yeah, it's full on. Yeah, it's it's full on, and it is it is so simple. Yeah, it's it's, um, but there's so many emotional things to it. It's the same way why people want to be afraid of sharks. Like why I've been fed this way from the people who love me my mm. whole life. Yeah. Why would I not make? We have meat? an emotional connection. Why would to I it? not make meat and three veg? Because that means love. That mm. means care. That's the thing that my mum made for me before she died. That's you know this is this meal reminds. I know me. how to do it, so it's easy. Exactly. That's that's what it is. A lot of the time, it's just easy. You know, yeah. we know how to do it, so we do it that way. Yeah, learn a new way. Super easy. I haven't eaten meat in, in three years. Yeah. And I, I don't, I'm not going to eat meat ever again. I don't need it. I don't want it. The funny thing is that the longer you go without it, the less you crave it. Like in the early days, very hard. Yeah. Uh, and people always say, well, it's easy for you. You live in LA. There's plenty of it out there. I don't eat out every meal. There are, there are ample restaurants if I want to go, but most of the time I cook at home. Yeah. And I can't afford to eat out every meal. So, and you can buy beans all over the world. Yeah. You can buy tofu all over the world. <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there are always options. And I just recommend people to just give it a go. You know? uh, it's very hard to do all at once. Do your meatless Monday. Do your meatless Monday, Tuesday. Stretch it out. See how far you can go. I do a lot of meal prep with my girlfriend. Uh, she's not vegan. But because I cook a lot of the time, most of her meals are vegan. And we cook up these incredible meals. We'll do our meal prep. We put them in little containers because I like to eat. So I don't want to spend all my time in the kitchen. We pull these meals out of the, the fridge whenever we need one, bang it in a pot, heat it up, and boom, instant meals. You don't even have to think about it. I don't have to go in the kitchen and cook stinky-ass chicken breasts and have that fat in my, my body and, you know, I was under the perception that to have muscles, you've got to eat all the chicken in the world. And now chicken just grosses me out. Same as eggs. And eggs are just so disgusting. Um, but I used to love them. They were the hardest thing for me to get rid of because I thought I needed that protein for muscles. Yeah. It's um Yeah, it's just don't I just don't need it in my life anymore. And you know, it's, uh, people will change if they want to and they'll change when they're ready. Um, so it, it's just nice to be able to provide people with the correct information. That's it, and and the inspiration, man. And one yeah. look, one one look at you at lifting the kind of iron that you're lifting at goals. People will go, oh, hang on a second. And when they look at guys like you, they look at guys like like John Venus, guys like Nimai Delgado. They look at these guys like, hang on a second here, hang on. All this stuff I've been told about, uh -huh. maybe that's not exactly true. Yeah. Maybe it's not exactly true. And yeah, and I was just saying this the other day, like. 
I can buy a kilo of chickpeas for about, I don't know, five bucks. <laughs> that's, that's a week of food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, chickpeas are cheap. Rice is cheap. Yeah. It's not that expensive no. to, to get the, 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 what you need in your body. But um, we live in a really interesting time. Last night we were watching uh, this new show on, on, on Channel 10, with, uh, the network I work for. It doesn't matter. But um, in the ad break, <laughs> Hungry Jacks is advertising a vegan uh, burger. Yeah, I had it the other day. I wanted, I wanted to try it out, so I went down there and had it. It wasn't very good. But still, but on primetime television. It's changing. On primetime television. Yeah. Yep. Because I always thought of that. I was lucky enough to go to, to business school in Amsterdam for a little while, uh, a couple of years back, and there was one of the guys there who worked for PepsiCo, and I thought to myself, hang on a second, changing people's eating habits – all you got to do is like change what's in front of them. They'll just see what's in front of them because they, you know, don't want to have to make those choices. If someone like Pepsi went, click their fingers, and went, here we go. They've got the distribution channel. Like yeah. if Macca's or Hungry's just went, or Burger King in the States, that's it. Yeah. We're going plant-based. People, I'll still go there because that's what I've of always course. done. And it's I'll easy. still eat that. I'll eat yeah. whatever they put in front of me. Fat Burger does the Impossible Burger now. In, in the States, there's a chain, you know, at Fat Burger, but here they don't have it. But it's- It's, like it's the one from the Ice Cube song. Yeah, it's like seven, seven bucks. The Impossible Burger, that's the one that the really extraordinary. You can't tell the difference. It's, yeah, it's, it's not meat, but what they've done is they've, um, they've identified the properties of meat that give it that meaty flavor, that heme iron. Uh -huh. The problem is that heme iron that they put into it, um, that's contributing to the cancer. Ah. Yeah. That's one of the, the heme iron is one of these things that the chemicals that's giving you the colorectal cancer. Right. So, um, not especially healthy. I may have eaten a few of those in my time along with a, a Bloody Mary after a, you know, a big night on the wine with the missus. But the great thing is it's changing. Mate, the if world that's what is it changing. Takes, if that's what it takes, yeah. Paul, I did for a while when I was transitioning, I did go for those kind of fake things and that's fine. Hey, healthy people like junk food too. Yeah, and that was okay and I was junk food vegan. I was like, I got quite fat actually. Oh, really? <laughs> well, when I moved to LA, suddenly <laughs> I can eat cheesecake every day. Yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> Of course, it's made of nothing but cashew nuts and, and coconut yeah. oil. So it's like 2,000 calories in one slice. <laughs> I loved it. But yeah, now I don't even, don't even crave for it. Um, can, I ask, can I ask about your prosthetics? Yeah, yeah. I don't get the chance to up. Kind of, kind of noisy. I don't, I'm never going to get a chance, I don't think in my life, to get a chance to upgrade my body. You have this incredible. <laughs> never say never, man. True, but you have this opportunity to upgrade your body in such an exciting way. Yeah. You gotta look at the positives, I suppose. If my if my leg breaks, I just send it back to Germany. You know, it's broken at the moment, actually. Uh, I'm actually on a loner leg because my last one broke. Yeah. So I have to go and see my prosthetist tomorrow night and get a replacement leg again because the knee's busted. But um, I, the, the technology is really good. So obviously, so much better than ever has been in the past. I've had these. These are probably the best commercially available prosthetics in the world. I'm very fortunate that Veteran Affairs pays for that and will pay for upgrades for the rest of my life. But I've had these for five or six years now and there's been no upgrade. So I'm really, like every, you think people get excited about an iPhone upgrade. Imagine relying on it for a hand or a leg. Like I cannot wait to see what comes out next. I, I hope the technology gets so much better. I watch these movies like The New Wolverine, Logan with the guy with the, the robot hand. I'm like, when can I have one of those? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Robocop, that guy's running on two robot legs. And I was like, oh, will you hurry up, smart people? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. You know, I'm never going to play the piano with this hand, but it's a, you know, Maybe it's a, a $90,000 
holding device. I can hold a beer with it and, you know, it's, it's better than not having it. It looks much better having a, a hand hanging out of your sleeve than just having one hand. So very grateful for the fact that I have what I have and I, I absolutely make the most of it. Mate, the idea that you could put sensors and cameras and mm. all kinds of things yeah. on it that, and hopefully that the, the feedback that might be able to give you, like that I, I could never have, like – could you just imagine if they figured out a way to put a camera on the index finger that you could then, you know. Well, then I have to walk around like pointing like ET the whole but time. But you could see around the corner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's Pointing, you could see around yeah. the corner. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, Can you just good. imagine that? Get my Google glasses on and or I could see the video. Yeah. It'd be amazing. <laughs> That'd be incredible. Dude, all I asked for was some Wolverine claws or a flamethrower. Surprisingly, they wouldn't do it. I reckon, I reckon if you put the word out, yeah. if you put the word out, someone would build you a flamethrower. Yeah. I did one- get one of those um, those fire torch, like the little um, lighters that yeah. project a flame out and I did sticky tape it to the top of my hand one Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little worried I was going to melt the plastic fingers though so I had to take it off. You were, you're having an extraordinary story, man, and I'm just so I'm so grateful that you, you made time to come here today. Uh, my pleasure, dude. Mate. The, you have more power than I can ever dream of of changing people's minds about not only the world we live in but also what's possible with their own lives. And I was so inspired when I first found out about you. You know, obviously I remember what happened to you. I remember seeing it go, you know, and then hearing your story and hearing your side of it and how you chose to look at it. That for me, that's, Paul, that's your greatest superpower. Well, that's that the power. You chose how to look at it. That's the power we have. It's the only true power that we have is that choice. We get to choose every day. What do I want? Do I want a good life or do I want a shit life? I mean, that's, that's the choice. Okay, everyone wants a good life. Then choose it and then make it happen. It, it's hard. It's not, not always going to be easy, but you know, the hard things are usually the ones worth doing. Being terrified and leaving home, going out to America wasn't easy. Leaving the Navy, my only security blanket wasn't easy. You know, jo- joining the Army initially wasn't easy. Leaving Canberra, was- nothing is easy. The big things are always going to be hard. But I discovered they're the ones that are always worth doing because they, they, you reap so much more reward from it. Personal growth, you know, personal happiness, gratitude, you know, all of that stuff. It just makes life a little bit easier and that's, I think, what most people are after. Just make life a little bit easier because it can be hard. Yeah. yeah. Mate, you're amazing. Thanks for coming around, bro. Cheers, bro. <laughs> that was Paul DeGelder. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter. His name is the same at both places. Paul, D-E-G-E-L-D-E-R. Paul DeGelder. If you have a chance to hear him talk, get to it. He is a magnetic human and pretty bloody handsome too. His book, No Time for Fear, is out now. He's all over Shark Week and he's recently been stretching his acting chops, his acting chops on the uh, Foxtel series Fighting Season. I got. I can't thank him enough for being on the show and making the effort. I, I did hunt him down and, and he eventually relented to come onto the show. So I'm super grateful to him for making it happen. Thank you so much to the team that helped make this show happen today. Andy Marr on audio production and editorial. Rachel Barrett on show production and sponsor relations and helping Paul and I get in the same room at the same time on the same day. It was a feat. 
big thanks to Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, on the music. You can find Mike on stage with me uh, March 13th, I'm sorry, December 13th, 14th in Melbourne and February 8th in Brisbane. So far, tickets on sale for all gigs at osherginsberg.com. And you, thank you for listening. Without you, I can't do this show. Without this show, oh, it's just not fun. I like doing it. It's great. I like what we're building together here. It's, it's really cool. I love it. If you need me through the week, you can find me on the Facebook group, osher.is slash FB group, or you can always grab me on Instagram or shoot me an email, email at gmail.com. Thank you so much for all the podsy pictures this week, including some magnificent chickens having a fantastic time in the snow in upstate New York, uh, someone walking to work through the misty, misty mornings of London, and uh, a lovely picture of somebody cleaning out their back shed. I'm happy to help all of these things. It makes me very, very happy. Um, Thanks for being part of this podcast adventure. This is fun. I'll see you next week. Until when, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.